Good evening to you all and welcome to this special Ralph Miliband event on the upcoming G20 meeting. Some years ago I, I wrote an article called Reframing Global Governance, subtitle Apocalypse Soon or Reform. I described at the time what I took to be something I called the paradox of our times, simply that the collective issues we must grapple with are of growing cross-border extensity and intensity and yet the means for addressing these are weak and incomplete, too often rooted in individual nation states acting in competitive isolation with each other. I mapped three core sets of global challenges. Those concerned with sharing our planet, obviously, for example, climate change. Those concerned with sustaining our humanity, for example, conflict mitigation and prevention. And those concerned with our fundamental rule books, which rules? that serve which interests, for example, financial market rules. All these problems call for collective and collaborative action, something which the nations of the world have not been particularly good at and which they need to be much better at if these pressing issues are to be adequately tackled. Yet, to be blunt, the evidence is wanting that we are getting better at building appropriate governance capacity at the global level. So what should the G20 do? How should we understand it against this backdrop? But as soon as, of course, you've asked this question, others emerge. Not exactly who exactly is the G20, but does it even have any effective power? The G20 group is formed of the 20 world's leading economies, or among the leading economies. 19 of the world's, in fact, 19 of the world's 25 largest national economies are included, plus the European Union. Collectively, the G20 economies comprise about 90% of global GNP, 80% of world trade, including European entry, uh, trade, and two-thirds of the world's population. The G20 was formally established at the G7 finance ministers' meetings in 1999, and its original role was to act, notabene, as a forum for cooperation and consultation, cooperation and consultation, on matters pertaining to the international financial system. A special leader summit of the G20 was convened in Washington in November of last year in response to the global financial crisis. The G20 leaders meet again in London on the 2nd of April, hence our meeting this evening. What will they focus on? There's no clear consensus among the G20 nations, but it's expected that the following three sets of issues are on the table. Some attempt at the coordination of macroeconomic policy to revive the global economy, some attempt at concern with the reform and to improve the financial sector and the financial market system, and some concern with the reform of international financial institutions, the international financial architecture, particularly the IMF. The G20 is certainly a more representative body than the G1 or the G5 or the G7, which have dominated the global economic and security agendas in recent times, and they have. Thus, its formation represents a significant step forward in establishing greater participation in, in a key global deliberative and policy-making arena. But what should it do? Faced with the severest crisis of the core economies since the World War II, a crisis now weakening economies across the world. And even if the G20 agree on a platform, can they see it through? Can they implement it? And how could they implement it? To help me discuss these questions, I'd like to welcome these three gentlemen, Will Hutton, Danny Quart, and Mick Cox, three of my very favorite people. 
I should add. Will Hutton is a weekly columnist and former editor-in-chief at The Observer and one of Britain's leading commentators on the British, European, and the international scene, particularly with respect to international politics and economics. He's currently chief executive editor of the Work Foundation and is also an LSE governor and senior visiting fellow at the LSE Center for the Study of Global Governance. Danny Kwa is head of the Department and Professor of Economics, of course, here at the LSE. He's also a senior research fellow at the LSE Ideas and a senior research associate at the Center for the Study of Human Rights. He holds degrees from Princeton and Harvard and was an assistant professor at MIT before joining the LSE. He's a highly regarded economist and highly sought after speaker. Mick Cox is professor of international relations here at the LSE. He's the director of so many centers, I can scarcely list them all, Mick, but I'll mention director of the Cold War Studies Center and co-director of LSE Ideas. He's spoken to high profile audiences, like us, of course, worldwide on a range of contemporary global issues, though most recently his focus on US foreign policy, the state of the transatlantic relationship, the role of the United States in the international economy, the rise of Asia, and the long-term problems facing the European Union. Each speaker will speak for about 15 minutes before I'll give them the opportunity to speak to each other. Then the floor is yours. So please join with me in welcoming Will Hutton first. David, thank you very much, and it's a pleasure to, uh, well, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, but it's not a pleasure to talk about this subject. Um, uh, I was saying, David, in the green room that, um, to my um, slight surprise, I woke up this morning at half past four in the morning worrying about yesterday's 5% fall in the London stock market and the fall in the <laughs> Wall Street, and uh, hoping that they wouldn't fall by similar amounts um, today. Um, and really concerned about the uh, condition of the you know, British and American financial system. Um, I mean, no one should be under any illusions. What we're, what, what we're witnessing is absolutely catastrophic. Um, people are sometimes very kind and say, you know, I was one of the people who saw this. You know, I absolutely didn't see this. Um, and I, you know, um, I sometimes get, you know, really cold fingers of fear um, in my gut. Um, thinking about what's going to happen to um, the UK and Western economies over the next 18 months, um, I really, really hope that the policy response um, and actually what we're going to discuss tonight uh, about what the G20 might do in April and how they might follow through actually works. In many respects, it, it could and it should. Um, a lot of money has been thrown at this, um, not just in the UK and in the US, but actually kind of in the um, European Union. But, I mean, just look at uh, some of the um, numbers we have to deal with. Um, just the UK alone, um, I mean, the, just for a benchmark, this as you listen to me, um, between 1929 and 1933 in the UK, GDP over a four-year period fell by 5.5%. Um, we'll be lucky if it only falls by 5.5% over 18 months. In other words, we'll be... The recession began um, in the May of last year, and by December of this year, that'll be you know, 18 months, 19 months in, and it's absolutely clear that the economy will have fallen by 5.5%. That's a more severe fall in the UK uh, than 29.33, and there's every prospect of further declines I mean, the first half of 2010, when we hope it stabilizes. Um, and just look around the world at some of the um, 
some of the numbers, and we were discussing them again in the green room. I mean, uh, Japanese industrial production has fallen by a third, I repeat, a third in three months. Japanese exports fell by 46% in January. The annualized fall in uh, American exports in the last quarter of 2008 was 23%. The world trade is, is imploding. Uh, there's now every prospect, well, the, what the official forecast is actually, uh, that the, uh, uh, the world economy will decline by 1.5% in 2009. Not just actually the G7 declining, uh, uh, but the world economy declining. Um, that's the first time that's happened uh, really since the 1930s. Um, uh, and uh, uh, you, you, it's not the, the amount of poison that's going into the system um, at every corner of it. It's the Austrian banking system, um, you know, really rocking with its exposure to Eastern Europe. Um, it's South Korea, whose GDP is declining by an annualized rate of 20%. Um, we've discussed the situation um, in, in, um, in Britain and the United States. You know, there are ripple effects of this in Latin America. There's no place now um, where um, you can hide. Um, there are some signs that China um, has tried to stabilize matters, but even there, the growth rate, which is running at close to 12%, um, has come right back. And in 2009, the World Bank forecasts its growth rate will be um, 6%. Um, I mean, to see what Danny um, agrees with that. Um, I've seen some scaremongers say that China's growth could fall in 2009 to below 3%. Um, and that is, um, for China, like an absolutely first-order crisis. Um, it, needs to, it needs to have growth of 8 to 10% just actually to stabilize um, uh, unemployment. And if you get growth of that rate, it's well below the rate of growth, for example, that China was experiencing during the Cultural Revolution. It gives you some sense of actually um, what's going on. Um, why are we where we are? The Queen's question here. Um, well, it was, um, I think it was a, um, an intellectual, absolutely first order intellectual failure. Um, I mean, again, some of the numbers are just so breathtaking. Um, in the summer of 2007, I mean, the gearing in American investment banks was routinely uh, 40 to 1. So for every $40 worth of assets they held or liabilities they held, they had $1 of capital. But more astonishing still, more astonishing still, was they were refinancing a quarter of their balance sheet every day, flipping it over every night assuming that the um, wholesale money markets, like the sea, um, were here to stay. And of course that was the real reason why Britain's demutualized building societies, like America's um, investment banks, um, got into trouble. Northern Rock, H. Boss, Bradford and Bingley, uh, they all thought that the, um, they could securitize anything and sell it into the interbank markets, just like the American investment banks thought they could refinance a quarter of their balance sheet daily and actually both come, have come a cropper. There are now no American investment banks. And it's just amazing. Bear Stearns bust, Lehman's bust, uh, Goldman Sachs is a bank, uh, Morgan Stanley is a bank, and Merrill Lynch is actually bringing Bank of America to its knees. I mean, huh. 
demutualized building societies, which some of us thought were going to be a disaster in the UK, similar story about that, entire sector eliminated. And then over and above that, um, you just have to acknowledge that HBOS, uh, which one of Britain's top five banks, completely bust. Royal Bank of Scotland, completely bust. Um, only really both surviving, one courtesy of Lloyd's um, group and the taxpayer, and the other by the UK taxpayer. 45 billion pounds has gone in to support a, a bank with a balance sheet of one and three quarter trillion pounds, uh, bigger than Britain's um, GDP. I can't, I, you know, I just can't get over how, it's almost, you know, words fail me at how you know, catastrophic the failure is um, in the American and British financial systems. Um, even HSBC, with its rights issue of 12 billion, is actually beginning to look wobbly. That astonishing loss in AIG, America's, Britain, um, America's biggest insurance company, yesterday for the, four, for the fourth quarter, uh, which, um, together with HSBC's rights issue, prompted the big sell-off. I mean, we are watching um, the disintegration of the Anglo-American financial system and potentially um, the European system. <coughs> I was told by a member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England yesterday that whilst the Americans and the British have begun to recognize their toxic assets, only one trillion euro of potentially 13 trillion euro of toxic assets are recognized in the European banking system. And that actually where the crisis goes next is France, Germany, and Eastern Europe, um, the Netherlands and Spain. And as Bank Santander owns the Alliance in Leicester and Abbey National, that's come straight back to us. So this is, this is in many respects, as Alan Greenspan has said, a more acute financial crisis than that in 1929-33, with potentially um, uh, as acute um, economic and um, trade effects, which is what woke me up at half past four in the morning and kept me awake. Um, what can um, the G20 do? And it's absolutely evident, as um, David said in his introduction, that um, uh, what any country does um, is ineffective um, beside the global nature of this crisis. Um, it's obvious to the Japanese. It's obvious to us in Britain. It's much less obvious, I must say, to um, the Americans. Um, one cabinet minister I spoke to yesterday so that negotiating with the Americans eerily reminds him of actually um, what it was like in 1943 and 44, negotiating war loans from the Americans <laughs> and later the foundations of the Bretton Woods system. But actually the Americans do take the view that actually they can go it alone and they will um, collaborate if they see advantage, but they don't actually look to that first as actually a way of leveraging what they're doing in a way which actually will be astonishingly helpful to them. I mean, it is I mean, a plain fact that it was the, the world savings blood that was deposited in New York that actually was the pool of liquidity um, that, that into which the, their banks fished um, and sold their securitized assets. Um, that allowed them to um, enter the subprime market, offering teaser interest rates, um, effectively zero interest rates, um, to no income households um, for mortgages which ran, as we now know, to trillions of dollars that actually have virtually no value. Um, but that wouldn't have happened if they weren't actually at the center of a, of a, of a global international financial system that they built. And indeed, it would now help them enormously um, for their banks if actually banks everywhere um, could put a, um, uh, uh, some kind of floor under this downward vortex that's taking place 
that because the interbank markets have seized up, you, uh, at the best you can do is to hold your loan book. The worst you can do is to shrink it. As you shrink your loan book, that takes property values down. Um, you have to take more losses still. That requires recapitalization, another round of collapse of trust, um, and freezing of the interbank markets. And that's been the story now. Some relief in America in the, in, the, in the interbank markets. That's one slight sign of optimism. But what would be great, what would be great is if the G20 could say um, with one voice, we are collectively uh, going to take a shock and door approach to putting our banking systems back on their feet. We will all stand behind every depositing institution of more than, let's say, $1 billion. And we will ensure that it has tier one capital, 4% of its assets, um, come what may, it's an absolute commitment by the G20 to put public their public balance sheets behind the capital of their banking systems, and even in a, if of necessity, tier two capital as well. They should all launch asset protection schemes of the type that the Americans and British have been developing, the Americans to support Citigroup, us to support Lloyds Group and RBS. Everybody, um, all central banks should commit to supply whatever liquidity is required um, at non-penal interest rates to get interbank markets moving. And all G20 countries should commit to creating good banks along, the, along with the de facto bad banks um, that they are accepting they have to do by having asset protection schemes for toxic assets. They should announce that on April the 2nd in London. They should go on and say, and one of the problems was that actually capital flew, uh, flowed uphill. The one of the problems has been um, in the 10 years up to 2007 that great pools of liquidity were created um, in New York largely, but also to a lesser extent in London by less developed countries building up foreign exchange reserves to protect themselves against speculative attack um, from a world of um, hedge funds um, and actually you know, the, 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 tre the, the treasury operations of, in, of investment banks and some commercial banks taking extremely leveraged speculative positions against their currencies and to hold the line. They built up foreign exchange reserves enormously because they knew the IMF only had $300 billion worth of um, quotas. Uh, so that if you're a medium-sized LDC, even a Thailand or a South Korea or an Argentina, you know, the IMF is quite quickly at the limits of what it can do to support you given its current um, capacities. I mean, actually, the IMF needs not the $500 billion that uh, Gordon Brown is talking about. It needs a trillion dollars. And uh, we need to assure less developed countries that they can take a, a less perniciously conservative approach to protecting themselves by having a robust international lender that will support them if they are subject to speculative attack. But um, that means they have to have a much fairer share um, in the voice and governing councils of that self-sim institution and it's enormously biased to the rich countries. We need the European Union to accept that Britain, France, Germany, Italy, and actually Holland should just speak with one voice, and the EU should represent them, and that should take our voting rates down at least um, 5%, uh, maybe as much as 10%, and those votes should be given to the Chinese, the Indians, the Brazilians, uh, and even the Russians. Um, we, should, we should ask as part of the deal that China Accepts the, the, uh, accepts the convertibility of the renminbi so that it can become a reserve currency to take some of the load off the euro, the yen, uh, and the dollar. 
you know, one starts to talk about a, a real global deal. And uh, I would make similar change to the governing arrangements to um, the World Bank. Both of them have to be held accountable. And I'd like to start to develop an accountability mechanism, maybe with the United Nations. Um, but we'll talk about that um, in discussions. I think there has to be commitment to quantitatively ease, uh, print money. I think that where um, we can, uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn and Olive, Olivia Blanchard, um, Managing Director and Chief Economist of the IMF, have said that um, every country in the G20 should attempt a fiscal stimulus over and above where they stand of 2% of GDP. Um, that should be followed through on. Yes, I agree with um, the people who say there should be a commitment on trade, not, and it should be a serious one. I mean, I just think the ritualized commitment we're going to complete the Doha round has become laughable. Um, if they say it again without it actually happening, it just becomes a kind of ritualized nonsense. Um, so you know, that's what I'm looking for um, from the G20 on April the 2nd. I don't expect to get anywhere near that. I expect there'll be, no, there'll be um, virtually nothing um, on fiscal expansion except um, doing what countries already said they would do. I think the conservative countries, Italy, Germany, Japan, will not actually want to go for quantitative easing. Um, I think there'll be, uh, I think the Europeans are in a sort of denial about how um, uh, chronic um, their banks are. They are going to follow the British and Americans in exactly the same crisis that we've been experiencing. And they are broadly where we were um, in August of last year. Remember, in August of last year, um, just a month, just actually three weeks, three weeks before Lehman's went bust on September the 14th, and six weeks before Britain had to recapitalize um, banks, spending nearly 50 billion pounds. Remember, the Bank of England published an inflation report um, looking at the, uh, the uh, projecting inflation and GDP over the next two years, in which you only forecast one quarter of flat growth, and the word recession was not in that document. That's August 08. That's how long it took um, the Monetary Policy Committee and the Governor of the Bank of England, uh, even six months ago, that's the place they were at. Mm -hmm. um, astonishing when you look back. Actually, many Europeans are in the same place at the moment, believing actually that whilst this recession may be having big impact on their exports and uh, on industrial production, um, essentially it's not going to infect their banking system <coughs> and that that's an Anglo-Saxon problem not a European one they are wrong and we need the Europeans to join in uh, seriously uh, with um, the British and Americans uh, in this urgent urgent need to put a floor under their banking system I don't I, um, that's what I would love to see um, on um, April the 2nd um, but I'm uh, it's, beca it's because I don't expect it that I find myself waking up so early, and I'm so worried. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on stage with Will Hutton, McCox, and David Held. Collectively, this evening, we're here to discuss what needs to be done by the G20 in their meetings next month and presumably beyond that. The G20 comprised of finance ministers and central bank governors from 19 among the world's largest economies together with the single bloc of the European Union. Why the G20? Well, the G20 grew out of 
the G33, and before that, the G22, formed in the wake of international financial crises 10 years ago. Before these were even a glimmer in anyone's eyes, the world, of course, already had the G7, the group of finance ministers from the seven industrialized nations, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the US. Not widely commented on, but quite remarkable, is that in the course of the current global financial crisis, the G20 has totally eclipsed the G7 as guardians of the international financial system and the world economy. And it is this quiet cool that I want to build my comments on in a way that differs somewhat from what Will Hutton has already done. Now, everyone here might already have the constituents of the G20 or even the now defunct G22 memorized. But for what I want to say later on, it is useful to recall that the G20 adds to the original G7 economies. What countries? Well, for one, the so-called BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, the countries that Goldman Sachs, at the turn of, the, at the turn of millennium, predicted would grow to be more important than the current, than the then leading industrialized economies. Apart from the BRICS, what else does the G20 add? It adds representation from all around the world. It has representation from Central America in the form of Mexico, from the Southern Hemisphere in the form of Argentina and Australia, from East Asia, both North and South, in the form of South Korea and Indonesia, from the Middle East and North Africa, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, and finally, of course, as I've already mentioned, the EU as a single bloc. Now, there are questions that all of us might raise about this particular composition. Why not Iran and Taiwan, who, by market exchange rates, are richer countries than some of these already here? Why double representation for some countries that are already components in the EU and not for others? The thing I want to point out, however, the thing that's most remarkable about this is that there are many good things to say about any international policymaking body that engages more than before the now emerging economies, not least those economies typically growing at rates three to four times that, that the G7 economies usually do. And not least, those economies routinely contributing as much as the United States does to world economic growth. In dollar terms, evaluated at market exchange rates, what we used to think of as good Yankee dollars, not funny purchasing power parity. For one thing, it is a simple recognition of the shift in the center of gravity of global economic activity. But more importantly for this evening's discussion, I will argue, resolving the current global economic crisis through the G20 and other means entails treating the emerging economies not just as an afterthought, but instead fully engaging them centrally 
in the international policy-making process. Therefore, that we've got the G20 now as the full focus is miles better than the previous G7. Here is my forecast of what the G20 will agree out of April's meetings. It is not a wildly extravagant forecast. Instead, it is one that's already built into the process. Out of the November 2008 meetings and subsequent discussions in the months since then, my guess is that four principal planks will inform the G20 meetings in April. The first of these is to boost global demand in a way that's coordinated across nations with both deficit countries and surplus countries playing well-defined roles. The G20 will recommend that both fiscal and monetary instruments be used, have fiscal stimuli and also quantitative easing. The G20 will recommend as this first platform to keep an eye on preventing contagion spilling into the emerging economies. The second of these planks is to improve financial markets and restore trust and confidence in them. Okay, there will be specific proposals, build a better early warning system, provide transparency, improve supervision and cross-border regulation, raise management responsibility. All things surely as good as mom and apple pie. Third, strengthen world trade, steer clear of protectionism. Again, something that ought to be, from a world perspective, unambiguously good. The UK and a number of other countries are insisting, perhaps half-heartedly, on a fourth plank. That is, to keep an eye beyond the current financial turmoil. Continue in the efforts towards meeting the Millennium Development Goals. Combat global climate change. Now, the first three of these are generally good on fiscal and monetary policy, on improving financial markets. Again, it's <coughs> difficult to dispute the actions or the proposals that will come out of this, but perhaps we might qualify that by saying there are dangers in overshooting. So we might actually, by quantitative easing and by overly lax fiscal and monetary policy, simply be putting in place the seeds for the next financial crisis. But as Ben Bernanke and others have pointed out, let's hold off on those. Let's first try to put out the current global fire. On trade and protectionism, those are from a world perspective generally good. But of course, through buy American policies and others, there are domestic populist dangers to them. And so it is good that we have something like the G20 reminding us of the good things that will come out of all this. Now, in the perception of some observers, item four, keeping an eye on what will come beyond the current financial turmoil, looking at the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, or combating global climate change, item four has been criticized by some observers as an unnecessary and distracting afterthought. I want to return to it later. For now, it is plain that the guardians of the world economy want and appropriately need to boost global aggregate demand without putting in place the ingredients for future international financial crisis. Now my goal here 
is not to go over again the blame game of counting up who is responsible for what part of global imbalances and how those led to the current financial crisis. The facts are already well known. The US economy shifted from approximate trade balance in the early 1990s to a current account deficit of $900 billion by 2006. So to put things in perspective, that last year, the United States economy was consuming more than it was producing one India every year. Over this time, the US bilateral trade deficit against China showed a parallel movement as the overall US trade deficit, as did the US bilateral trade deficit against the EU and the oil exporting economies. The world, therefore, partitioned into a block of large deficit countries, on the one hand, the US and the UK, and a block of large surplus countries on the other, China, the oil exporters, and the EU. It's useful to point this out, if only because the effects of boosting domestic demand will differ across the deficit countries and the surplus countries. Now, whether prudent savings out east caused profligate consumption in the West or vice versa, the end result is that these massive international capital flows led to global imbalances that in turn, through bad judgment, and irresponsible behavior in financial markets produced extreme financial leveraging. And it's the unwinding of the financial superstructure off of the US subprime mortgage defaults that have frozen credit channels, crashed housing and property markets, and reduced incomes, output, and trade worldwide in the quantities that Will has already told you about. In light of these facts, what the G20 will presumably propose to boost aggregate demand and to restore trust in financial markets must at some level of abstraction be absolutely the right things to do. Here is the difficulty, and here is where the rest of my comments will focus. Boosting demand in deficit countries will worsen their deficit position and therefore exacerbate the state of global imbalances. Therefore, fixing credit channels in the West alone will only bring the global economy so far if it does not, in fact, put in place the seeds for the next global financial crisis. In the views of many observers, and presumably among, for many policymakers on the G20, getting the surplus countries like China, the Middle East and North Africa, Germany, to boost their domestic demand would be a doubly effective recommendation. World demand will rise, global imbalances will fall and unwind, deficit countries will see exports rise and deficits fall, and the boost to external demand in the surplus countries will have boosted external, will have the boost to demand, domestic demand in the surplus countries will automatically improve external demand for the deficit countries, and that will lift incomes. What's the problem with that scenario? Why should the surplus countries suddenly agree to save less and import more? The argument that's often made is that the current global economic crisis, true in, 
began it in the financial centers in the US and the UK, but its aftermath will be far worse in the emerging economies. So it's actually the interest of the emerging economies themselves to play this game. What are the facts here? The experiences of many emerging economies is that in a financial crisis, they do not want to be caught without backup reserves and resources. The East experienced a humiliating and sobering such episode in the 1997 Asian financial crisis, and it will try very hard not to be caught out again. And anyway, what are the facts on the cross-country aftermath of financial and economic downturn? What is exactly at stake for surplus countries that might convince them to deviate from a savings-intensive export-led growth strategy that they have run and successfully so for the last two decades. And here, I have to disagree a little with Will Hutton's recital of the economic facts from different parts of the world. It is true that world GDP continues to be dominated by the United States and the UK and the Euro area. But consider the following. Over the last quarter of a century, economic growth in China brought 627 million people out of extreme poverty. This number is double the population of the United States, and it exceeds in poverty reduction all of the rest of the world combined. The US economy last experienced recession in 1991 and 2001. What happened to East Asia or other parts of the world? In 1991, China contributed to world economic growth three times what the decline in US GDP turned out to be. East and Southeast Asia contributed 20 times, and the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia, the so-called Minasa countries, contributed double. In 2001, the figures are parallel to what I've just recited. So two things to take out of this. Longer term, the development and export strategy that China and East Asia and other surplus countries have pursued have arguably done more for improving the human condition than pretty much everything else that has happened in the world economy. And in recent US recessions, China and the rest of East and Southeast Asia and the Minasa economies have more than respectably held up their end of world economic growth. The current recession is no doubt different, but all recessions have been different from all previous ones. The facts about growth in China now are not dismal. New bank loans in China rose 19% at the end of 2008 from, 18, from 12 months before, probably the only country where the banking system has continued to hand out loans to the private sector. The Shanghai stock market has continued to rise ever since China's four trillion renminbi fiscal stimulus announcement last November. In surveys, Chinese purchasing managers' confidence levels have risen every month since November. In India, new cell phone subscriptions reached a record of 11 million in January 2009. As rural customers, who now form the bulk of consumption in India, who don't typically own land or hold extensive financial portfolios and so are unaffected by plunging stock markets, 
and real estate prices continue to see the benefits from digital mobile telecommunications. So in my reading of the global economy, sure, there's bad news all around, but some countries, the surplus countries, will need to be convinced that the aftermath for them is as bad as what the West tells them it is, and for them to be convinced of that or otherwise persuaded, that has to occur before the boost, worldwide boost in global aggregate demand can occur. Simply jawboning the surplus countries to boost aggregate demand will now not work. Let me conclude. Remember what I said about the afterthought in plank number four, the Millennium Development Goals? Well, in my roundup of the global economy, putting the Millennium Development Goals center stage is now no longer just an incidental last item on the to-do list that the G20 will get to if it has time and resources left over after quantitative easing and boosting fiscal demand. Instead, the Millennium Development Goal should here be interpreted as a mechanism to provide emerging nations, surplus countries, greater economic security. Emerging nations need to, be feel, need to be made to feel engaged with international financial institutions. They need to be convinced that those institutions are on their side and will support them in the face of economic <coughs> difficulties. The greater participation of emerging and surplus countries in the G20 as opposed to the G7 is a massive step in the right direction. So, in addition to all the other sensible things that the G20 should go about doing, providing greater global participation to the emerging countries ought to be high on their agenda. Thank you. feel sorry for Will. He wakes up every morning wake, thinking about the world economy. <clears throat> I wake up every morning asking myself the question, why can't I sell my three-bedroom flat in Highgate? <laughs> so if anybody wants to come up and find a very nice three-bedroom flat in Highgate, I will talk to you afterwards. Uh, I'm much more prosaic than Will. I think the other reason that David brought me on the, uh, on the platform, apart from to cheer you up, is the first smile I've seen in 37 and a half minutes. I think David wanted somebody on the platform who knew absolutely nothing about economics and might say a little bit more about the, the politics of this, a little bit more, although it was implicit in what both Danny and what Will said. Now, what should the G20 do? Well, I suppose the cheap answer is not wait six months. Since the last meeting in November, it does seem rather remarkable that if this is going to be a very important occasion, the fact that you wait six months between does say something significant about, uh, about the importance. I suppose the smart answer is read the Financial Times. Uh, we've always been asked who has had a good crisis and who's had a bad crisis. Overall, I think the FT's had quite a good crisis. I have to read it immediately after I wake up thinking about why my flat is not selling uh, every, every morning. Um, and certainly, I mean, the one thing that the Financial Times does, at least for me, I don't know for anybody else, is actually leaves you no place to hide. It is actually the most miserable newspaper now in the world. Um, largely, I think, because the stories are repeated and get worse um, every other day. 
It's almost like bourgeois Trotskyism, except um, this time it seems to be true. The news is clearly catastrophic in spite of what Danny says about China. It's the only, light, only bit of light in the whole analysis that I've heard this evening, and we can talk about that. If we just take the three areas of the world economy very quickly, and here I will try and be a cheap uh, political economist, I remember that on the evening when uh, Barack Obama was elected, and a wonderful evening it was, and in the following week, Wall Street dropped by about 10%. Clearly, it did not impress the markets. Um, a great man though he is. The February stimulation package, so-called, has led to another massive dive in Wall Street. So notwithstanding the election of a very great man and this massive stimulation package, or so-called, it seems to make absolutely no difference uh, to, the, to the markets. Dow Jones has fallen, and just to give you quick statistics, 23%, I think, in 2009. We've seen the worst cut in dividends in the United States since 1938, critical year, and we're seeing something like 500 to 600,000 job losses per month with no end in sight. It is certainly true that China may offer a ray of light, as uh, Danny has said here and in previous, on previous occasions I've spoken for him, but certainly don't, don't try and tell that story in Japan where exports are dropping uh, like a stone. And Japan still remains, after all, in spite of China's rise, peaceful or otherwise, the second largest economy in the world capitalist order today. For Europe, of course, the story is equally bleak, although I think, as uh, pointed out uh, by, by our two speakers, certainly by Will, uh, whether they've got it yet remains to be seen, whether they've actually intellectually grasped the fact uh, it's kind of the interesting question that one of the things this crisis has brought out, apart from a stream of very good but bad jokes, um, uh, one or two I will tell you in a moment, just to cheer you up again, by the way. As I remember a, a very nice student of mine, a French student, saying, we're winning. And I said, well, what exactly are you winning? She said, well, you Brits, you've been crowing it over us for the last 10 years about globalization, free markets, deregulation. You've been telling us what's been wrong with it. Now we've got it, you know. I mean, and, and it kind of illustrates a problem in this current situation. Yeah. That it's not bringing out the best in people. It's not bringing out the international. It's not bringing out the communitarian. Let's be blunt about it. It is bringing out something deeper, more visceral. It isn't quite exactly British jobs for British workers, but it's kind of French answers for French problems. British answers for British problems. And whatever the rhetoric of, of global communitarian cooperation is, this has been the reality over the last few weeks and months. But Bob Zellick, a man I much admire, has talked of a new iron curtain coming down in Europe, by which he doesn't mean Churchill has been dug up and been brought back to proclaim a new Cold War. It is simply that the divide between Western Europe, which is in deep crisis, both the Eurozone and the Sterling area, and the East is getting worse. And indeed, the crisis within East, East and Central Europe and Russia. Is, is indeed very deep. So wherever we look, the, the, the story is a miserable one. Globalization is under threat. Uh, we talked about it before in the 1990s. Now it is actually under threat. Protectionism, economic nationalism is on the rise. And the political stability of many countries in the world, including those in Europe, is now in question. Is now in question. Indeed, one of the reasons I've argued why the United States might come out of this better is that the United States ultimately is more politically stable than many, many other countries in the world today, which will give it, it seems to me at least, some degree of cushion in this difficult situation. One could go on. This is deep. This is long term. It was not predicted. 
Still, a number have not even caught up with this, including the overwhelming majority of the Republican Party in the United States today. I was actually in the US last week. I thought I had landed on Mars, <laughs> listening to what the Republicans were actually saying about their objections uh, to, to, this, to what is effectively not a terribly radical package from, from Barack Obama. I thought I'd landed on Mars, but basically I was mixing still with a lot of monetarists. No, they said this will create deficits, don't you know? Well, there you go. Um, and on and on it went. And I do think, by the way, this is a problem for Barack Obama, which we shouldn't actually fully, under, we shouldn't completely underestimate. He is, although he has majorities in both houses of Congress, the things he will be able to do and not do will be constrained by an intellectual atmosphere and a political environment. He does have to win the next election, and this will constrain what he will be able to do economically, both at home and also what he will be able to do in terms of global cooperation. Now, the measures so far, and we'll outline many of these, actually much has been done. There's no doubt. I mean, this, I mean yeah, over six months, um, or even over the whole year, the measures which have been taken both nationally and, and indeed discussed internationally have been absolutely, completely remarkable. I mean, effectively, large parts of the American economy are nationalized, although nobody wants to call it that. Um, we've seen deficit spending in terms which we'd never have anticipated before. And interest rates, as I'm now discovering, given I've actually got some savings, uh, have dropped effectively uh, to zero. It isn't that the world and its leaders have done nothing. They've actually done things which have been extraordinarily remarkable. In terms of what one could have thought about two years ago, what has actually been done has actually been extraordinary, almost radical and revolutionary. But it's only stopped the collapse. It has not provided an answer. And that is, that is the dilemma. Um, I always think of this in the, the little boy you know, in, in Holland many, many centuries ago when he saw the, the dam collapsing. He put a couple of fingers in there. Of course, he stayed there for years. Um, <laughs> But all he was doing was holding the thing up. He was only holding the dike up, and that effectively is where we're still at. And what is so panic-striking about this situation, which Will described in almost suicidal tones earlier on, <laughs> is not simply that the objective facts are bad. It is that each of the measures which is taken to deal with the facts on the ground don't deal with the situation as it is unfolding. It is almost like we're almost three months or six months behind the curve of the ball coming towards us, and then left with a series of new questions to which we have to adopt new and more radical answers. Now, in answer to the question, should the G20 do more? Well, I'm bound to say, well, of course it must do more. What it will actually be, I am not too certain. But will it? And here, I suppose, my, my skepticism is bound to kick in. I mean, first of all, look at the international community, and maybe look at one part of the international community over the last year during the crisis, namely the European Union. Now, this is, after all, the most integrated, the most advanced part of, in terms of regional integration, coordination, what, what one would call global governance in David, David's terms. But, but what has actually happened? I mean, if this is an example of where national psyches or national national interests are overridden, well, it has simply not happened. I mean, if we simply take what has happened within the European Union, you know, the most communitarian of regional organizations, far beyond ASEAN and anything else which exists in the world, then it does not augur well for the future. It simply does not augur well for what will happen at the G20. Um, the second thing I raise, really, is do, do the so-called Western countries actually agree with one another about what they want to do? 
Now, again, I'm not an economist, so I simply read the newspapers and keep up with these things. But it does strike me there's some still fairly profound divisions between various states in, in, in the world economy at the moment that actually want to do. And once again, surprise, 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 the French are out on one kind of limb in this debate, and the British and the Americans are out on another. In other words, there's not actually agreement about what needs to be done. I mean, President Sarkozy essentially wants to rewrite the, a, a, new, a new form of capitalism. He wants to start from the base. Almost, I, almost, I wouldn't put him like a member of the Khmer Rouge starting in, in year zero, but there's a kind of year zero quality about his thinking, that we have to start anew or think afresh. And I'm not sure that is happening. But I suppose my, my skepticism, and this is, what I, this is what David got me up here to do, both to amuse the, amuse the masses, he said, and keep, keep them happy. But at the same time, but it seems to me that this is as well also, David, about power. And it's about kinds of thinking. Firstly, will the West, the advanced West, because obviously this involved developing, will it give up more to the developing countries to come up with an answer, which it would have to do. And on, 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 the, on, on the evidence for the last few years, not to mention the Doha round, the answer to that must be no. The sacrifices the advanced Western countries would have to make, which it has not been prepared to make over the last few years, would indicate that there's not, there's not much going to come out of this, David, unless the West is prepared to do what great powers in the past have tended not to do, namely give up part of their power. And I don't see any indication of that at the moment. The second thing is that it gets me back to a kind of a notion of where we are now at. It seems to me the situation is so radically catastrophic, so radically dangerous, and we're only in the middle of this process, maybe even at the beginning of it. We don't know. We have no idea where we are in this process. Soros, in his recent book, said we're in the midst of a financial crisis. And that was in early 2008. What nonsense. We're not in the midst of it. We may be just the begin at the, in the foothills of this situation. We just don't know. We just don't know. But if we are... We've got to be far more radical, and I don't mean in the kind of old left-wing fashion necessarily, we've got to be far more radical than anything that has been contemplated so far. I mean, in this way, by the way, the Americans after World War II were extraordinarily radical. I mean, the Marshall Plan was radical. You know, this was an export of 3 or 4% of its GDP. They contemplated the possibilities of full-scale nationalization in Europe. They underpinned state-run industries. You know, all the rest of it. Extraordinary, radical, imaginative. Now, does one see that at the moment? I don't. I just don't see that occurring. We're still, if I kind of use an old argument from the end of the Cold War, we're still within old thinking. Or at least the vestiges of old thinking are still there in many, many ways. It's not caught up with the radical dangers which I think are facing us. And it brings me to the third obstacle, really, David, and here I'll end. And it gets back to the kind of the, the question that you've raised in your writings and, and, and Tony and many others on this, is how much, how much national control <coughs> over economies are states prepared to give up? You know, I mean, how much will they actually willingly concede for the larger community or for the wider international society? In other words, how much sovereignty economically and politically are they prepared to give up to subordinate their own national interests for some global, more communitarian answer. And the answer to that, I think, is dubious. It's problematic. It's highly problematic. And from that point of view, the key to the G20, in, in the end, will still be the United States. I mean, I think in spite of what Danny says, I think the, the, not the answer, but the key to the G20 will be the United States. And in spite of Obama, who was a great man, and I much prefer him to be president than anybody else at the moment, um, 
He wants to get re-elected back in 2012. He faces a, a, a supportive, but nonetheless, there's a very powerful hostile bloc within Congress who don't like this. There's a very powerful set of intellectual arguments about deficit spending, which still exist in the United States. The character of the debate over there is still very, very different to what I hear either here in the UK or, or, or in Europe. There is still some sort of notion that old arguments can still be put on the table and, valid and used in this situation. It's not just the Republicans either. It, it kind of stretches across large parts of the economics profession and large parts of the, of the wider, wider community. And, and, and finally, and I'll end on this rather pessimistic note as well, while Barack Obama is a wonderful, wonderful president in so many ways, and I've said it 20 times now, so I don't have to keep repeating myself, <laughs> There is still deep within what I would call the American national, within what I would call the, the American psyche and the hardwired into American foreign policy making, hardwired into the Constitution, hardwired into the way Americans still think about the world, there's still a deep resistance to multilateralism. Whichever way, whichever way you cut it, whichever way you cut it, and, and, and on two major issues, national security and on economic security. And the two things are now the same. As you've seen from the recent report of the National Intelligence Estimates, actually uh, authored by an interesting man called Blair, not, not Tony, but somebody else, um, makes the point at the very beginning. This is now our national security. Now, if, they, if, they, if, security, if, if economics is now securitized, it means it will also be, it will not be multilateralized. Because if this is now seen as national security, the, the, the in, inherent US tendency, I think, to find its own solutions for its own job list, for its own banks, for its own industries, including GM and many, many others, I think is going to increase. And if it does so, I think, therefore, G20 as a collective action is going to face some very difficult and tough problems. Thank you very much indeed. At this point, we should probably all adjourn to the bar. However, before we do... <laughs> Um, Will has to go um, to another lecture um, in a few moments, so before he does, the rest of us will stay and can stay till 8 o'clock, but before Will retires, I would like him to reflect for a moment on what the two others have said, uh, 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 particularly, I think, on Danny's comments about uh, China as a sort of beacon of alternative economic power that is still very bright, and something about mixed sort of deep sort of realist pessimism. Um, as a framework for thinking about what is likely to emerge in, over the next uh, uh, um, 12 months in political terms at the multilateral level. Well, I mean, Danny and I have this, um, uh, uh, doing some emphasis on China, and I, it comes out in this discussion. I mean, I think that uh, China did constitute a great kind of supply shock to the whole world in the last seven or eight years. It joined the WTO in 2001. And... Uh, Here's my point. I think that actually uh, Chinese exports grew at 26, 27% for you know, the six years after that. And um, that happened because we in the West took advantage of this, uh, you know, um, the disinflation it provided us, uh, and especially in regimes where there was inflation targeting like in Britain. And we ran um, our economies uh, with much more uh, credit flows, money supply growth. We allowed our, our banking systems to double their balance sheets in this period. Um, and that, uh, taking advantage of the fact it wasn't going to create inflation because there was China. And uh, China's exports grew very, 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 very rapidly. 
And um, everyone got so confident that there was, at the, end, at the end of this process, that you know, somehow Asia and China decoupled from the West, when in fact they'd never been more coupled. And here's, uh, and I think that you know, looking at the January data for China, I mean, I was just, I mean, I, there, it is true, Danny's true, bank lending is really growing vigorously. I mean, two-thirds of the reflationary package that the State Council announced in October is going to be done not by raising public expenditure and cutting taxes, but actually through the banking system. So the banks are actually going to lend to and provincial governments and city governments and state-owned enterprises. That's going to take the load of it. <coughs> Meanwhile, um, Chinese exports have fallen by, you know, 20% or thereabouts. Um, um, imports even more. I mean, it's not a it's not a good scene. Um, the the their, um, uh, their trade in China is really really suffering a huge hit, and there's a compensa compensation whether it's sustainable by this big growth in Chinese bank lending. I think the Chinese banking system is in many respects as precarious as the West banking system, and uh, I I don't know whether this can um, this will only follow through um, as a stimulus if actually um, the American European economies recover, the American economies recover. But we all have to hope, I think, because the epicenter of this was the United States, it still remains the most important economy on earth, is that actually if we start to see a floor under American property prices, um, we'll start its stabilization in Western, in American banks, and the whole thing will start to steady. Um, that's really the, uh, the thing you've all got to look at. I'm, uh, I'm, I want not to be pessimistic. It's just boring being pessimistic, you know. I want, I, um, and uh, I really, really hope that the um, the, the uh, economy stabilizes progressively as this year wears on, and then in 2010 we start to see um, an upturn. That is the best guess, but it's not certain. And what would make it more certain, and here I want to pick up the uh, points that I rest will make, is if actually we could overcome this deeply embedded kind of nationalism that exists here in the European Union, and actually, uh, you're right, hardwired in the DNA of the United States. Um, frankly, you know, um, it's, it's pretty prevalent in the United Kingdom. I mean, what is Euroscepticism except a form of unwillingness to, to make common cause with European partners? You know, at this, this moment in international affairs, um, it's profoundly risky. And amazingly, I've got, you know, I have to, I'm sorry about this, because when no. David invited me, I said, I do have to give this other lecture um, at so the same night as this one. But um, So forgive me. So a quick thank you to Will before he goes. I think this would be a good moment um, to uh, turn to you, the audience, for questions. We'll take them, if that's right, in clusters of four or five. And... Um, Questions are, should generally please be short and tight, um, so we can have as many of you raising issues as possible. So let me start. Yeah, there were there are mics somewhere. Yeah, let's start with this guy here. We'll come to as many of you as possible if you if you are disciplined. Okay. So um, where does this crisis leave the so-called new new bread and woods uh, system? Will the Chinese still want to lend money to the United States? I, I, I don't know what's happened recently, so I haven't been following it, so maybe you'll be able to tell me what will happen to the dollar if they, <laughs> if they decide to stop. I thought it was one question. <laughs> hang, hang on, hang on. New Bretton Woods, Chinese willingness to lend, and what will happen to the dollar? I think there's a three already. And who will win the Oscars in short 2010? Two yeah, okay. Thank you. <laughs> right. Three, I mean, three pressing points. Let's, can you try and restrict yourselves to one key point? Yes, gentleman with the blue shirt. Thank you. 
Would you agree with Robert Zerlich of the World Bank that while the G7 is obviously too small, the G20 is too big to be effective? And indeed, I understand from FD this morning the number of delegations on April, April 2nd will be 27 or 28. Is Obama sufficiently engaged? He's obviously totally absorbed with the domestic situation. There's great difficulty in getting his attention on the international attention. He's on a north face of the Iger learning curve. Aren't we expecting too much of him? And finally, on the IMF, we can't wait for it to be restructured. Germany shows no interest in trying to help bail out the EU members of Eastern Europe. Uh, Karl Otto Pohl was sitting where Professor Cox was last Thursday, and all he said was nine. You, 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 yeah. I mean, I can't blame you for wanting to. I can't, I can't blame you for wanting to raise Multiple several points <laughs> because the complexity of the issues on the table is so great. It's hard to come at them in just one issue. But yes, the lady at the back. Try harder. <laughs> Not you. Everyone. Okay. Um, I would like to make a comment on the represent representativeness of the G20. You said there were countries from like a lot of regions, but that doesn't mean that they represent the regions. And I think similarly, the UK would not be happy to be represented by Germany just because it's nearby geographically. Exemplary, thank you. <laughs> um, yes, gentleman at the back waving his paper. That was a good technique. Uh, uh, hi there, Martin Coder from Lanson's Public Affairs, and this is a, a question on behalf of the Isle of Man government. Uh, and it is on a single issue, uh, which is about uh, what you think uh, the G20 should do, if anything, about um, offshore financial centres, uh, and whether you think um, they've just become a bit, that's just a bit of a political point because they're uh, easy to point out and you know, accuse of being rich man's tax haven, etc. Yeah, lady next to you, yeah. We'll come back. Um, uh, Linda Korsha. Um, disappointing that, um, disappointing to me that there's no mention of, uh, of redistribution, um, a sh an ideological shift towards redistribution. Surely that is uh, the best uh, stimulus demand. Um, I'd re-echo the emphasis on the, 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 um, the move to close tax havens is uh, positive in that direction. Thank you. Well, that's, I think that's a good starting, starting point. Let me, let me turn to Danny first. And... Uh, uh, um, cut up those you feel you could best use your time with now. Okay, S so many questions. Um, and there are more to come. The <laughs> can I pick up on the last question, the redistribution point? I, I'm sorry you felt disappointed that we didn't talk about it. I think implicitly, I tried to, and but you know, my view is a global one. We need to talk about redistribution across countries as much as we do redistribution across people within a society. And the, the, the degree of, if, you know, if inequality is your concern, the degree of inequality across countries massively overwhelms any degree of inequality that you see within countries. What is interesting here is that the redistribution of power and redistribution of economic activity with across countries in the world actually contain, in my view, the seeds for how we're going to come out of the global economic crisis now. Um, can I hand over to Mick now and then come back? I'll take my sweet out of my mouth. Okay. Um, on, um, let me deal with China and the United States because maybe, maybe you can come back on that one as well. I mean, if one is looking at kind of U.S. priorities at the moment, I mean, it's quite interesting to see where they lie. I mean, you know, the first thing that Obama did was make a speech on Arabic. Uh, channel to try and talk to the Muslim world. 
Um, the first major country, which not that he has visited, but Secretary of State has visited, interestingly, is, is Asia, is China. Um, Neil Ferguson, who has spoken at this place many times before, has talked about Chimerica. Um, there is absolutely no doubt at all that for this administration, China is absolutely central in this. I mean, I'm not saying it's more important, that, therefore, than the European Union, but in terms of you know, the American thinking on this, this kind of interdependency, this integration of the two together as economic partners, it's absolutely clear. Now, if you believe in human rights in China, I'm sorry, tough. I mean, if you think that Tibet's going to get independence tomorrow, tough. You know, her, her, her view and her relationship now with China is, is a very matter-of-fact one. At the heart of this isn't the old-style strategic stuff, it's the new style, what I call the new style strategic economic stuff. And no U.S. administration, and it's going to see China as its number one partner in this. I was asked a question this morning, can you believe on Welsh radio? Um, not in Welsh, thank goodness. And it said, you know, is there still a special relationship between the United Kingdom and the USA? Kind of, because Gordon, Gordon's over there being ignored. <laughs> and, um, and I said, well, ignored by the press, by the way. I went through all the American press this morning. I couldn't find him anywhere. And um, I said, well, there may, there, may not, there may be some kind of special relationship between the UK and USA, but um, there's certainly a really big one between China and the United States of America. And so I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but this is, this is really quick. On the, on the, on the quick question, of, is about, I mean, on if, can large organizations be effective? Answer, well, it depends who leads them. That, I think that's my answer to it. You know, I mean, it, it sounds very kind of elitist to think that, but I do think in the end, you know, effective multilateral organisations do paradoxically, but maybe not so paradoxically, depend on leadership. You know, in the end, what made the UN effective at any moment in time wasn't just it had everybody in the General Assembly, but it also incorporated the great powers as part of the deal. You know, therefore overcoming the fundamental weakness of the League of Nations. And I think leadership is therefore critical and. Um, Who's going to lead at G20? That's the question I ask. And I actually don't have the answer to that. Um, I just don't know who's going to, who it's going to be. And, I, and I'm not sure to that extent the US is, is, is so engaged in this one as it would be with other issues, whether to save GM at home, whether it's to do the deal with, um, with China, whether to try to work with Japan bilaterally. And I, I'm simply not so. And of course, Barack Obama is extraordinarily engaged at home in this package that he's getting through with great difficulty, although he's got that majority. Um, offshore centres we can talk about. Let's face it, there's a lot of populism around at the moment and probably good good thing too. You know, why not? I mean, the banksters have got us into this mess we're in. You know, why not? Um, I think a, a, we need a bit of populism. <laughs> and I've supplied it for you tonight. So. That was one of your jobs. That was one of my jobs. And you did it very well. Oh, thank you very much. Um, Danny, would you like to come back over here? Danny, you can be scientific. <laughs> the, let me pick up on uh, three questions, two of which seem to be in opposition to each other. Is the G20 too big? And is, and is the G20 possibly not representative? of the global economy. And I think you know, the tension between those questions illustrates the tension that international policymaking finds itself in. You know, a truly representative international policymaking body would comprise 6.6 .6 billion people. Now, you know, obviously, you can't fit them in one room. Um, and, and you, a 
although the Sheikh Zaid theater, I mean, the, and you, you know, people have to make choices, and international policy making has to find itself a comfortable trade-off. Um, I've remarked on how, you know, and David has remarked on how, you know, the G20 is also not the 19 richest countries in the world, plus the EU, it is some sample selection, some selection that attempts to get a geographical uh, dispersion together with you know, a good representation of the world's GDP. I don't know what the ideal international policy making body will be. I think in some ways what we're doing here is trying to come up with that. We're trying to come up with ideas and feedback to our governments to the extent that we are working in functioning democracies that will enter the discussion and something good ought to come out of that. I'm not as pessimistic as you know, maybe my colleagues more steeped in political science and international relations. I think that uh, what we're trying to do here is a good thing. And what the G20 is trying to do is a good thing. And fingers crossed they will come up with the right decisions. Uh, David, I, I'd actually be really interested to hear your views from a global governance perspective on whether the G20 roughly gets it right. Yes, so would I. Um, but I'll, can I come back to that in a moment? Because I, I, like I would like to say something, actually, about it. Um, uh, uh, but I'm anxious just to not do so when there's so many people asking uh, for space. That was an elegant way to move on, wasn't it? Yes, gentlemen up there. Just to, just to go back to tax havens, one of the countries not represented is Switzerland. Um, do you think that um, Gordon Brown's indication that he was going to target Switzerland is an attempt um, to distract attention from British tax havens, like the Isle of Man and others? Perish the thought. Yeah. We've had a, a fairly gloomy picture of the recession painted um, and we've also had an inspiring call to uh, uh, start anew and, and think afresh. Um, will uh, the, the members of the panel be joining me on the march for uh, jobs, justice and climate on the 28th of March um, alongside march? Oxfam, Shelter TUC and Save the Children and many more. Which um, march? We go to so many. We just <laughs> <laughs> It's called the March for Jobs, Justice and Climate. It'll be supported by Oxfam, Shelter, TUC, Save the Children, many others. Um, it's not organised by the SWP. I'll go to it. No, no it's not. Um, <laughs> and, and, and one of its key calls um, in bringing together the jobs aspect, the, just, the, the justice climate and, and the climate aspect is calling for a Green New Deal. Um, will you use your positions of influence to push for a Green New Deal at home and abroad? What? Two down. Hi there, thank you for the speeches. Um, just one thing, I'd like to pick up on what um, Professor Danny Kwa said um, and relating to his question to Professor Held. Um, Professor Held, would you say that um, this crisis and the response to it uh, signals an end to your cosmopolitan theory, or, or more a renewal of it through global governance in the future? Let's answer that question that? first. <laughs> I, I will, I will, I will speak to that. One, yeah, a couple more questions at the back. Well, I come from South America, and we learned our lessons on structural adjustment from the World Bank and the IMF. Are the Western economies ready to take that medicine? Yeah. <laughs> and number two, does this crisis mean the collapse of the welfare state? 
We like your first part of that question. Yes, yeah. gentleman at the back. Um, I, I, my name is Harry Ayres. I'm a columnist for the Financial Times. That's basically miserable paper. Hey, but I, no, no, I've nice, been instructed nice, to. I've been instructed by my editors to be cheerful. So. Um, I just wondered if there might be an opportunity hidden within this crisis, and, and particularly an opportunity for greater cooperation um, in global governance, and starting with the European Union. And I was just wondering if that meant we should join the Euro. Right. So let, let me... Yeah, okay. I, 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 that will probably be the last round of questions, so let me raise a few issues myself uh, as a way of speak, picking up um, Danny's point and the question over there. Um, if I can. I, Tony Giddens, who was in the room, uh, 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 left on me a great impression in one undergraduate lecture when he stood there and said, there are a number of sociological don'ts. And this is probably the only undergraduate lecture I remembered, but it's always stayed with me, and they're very powerful don'ts. They are, don't exaggerate from one time period. When thinking into the future, don't exaggerate from one time period. Don't exaggerate from one, the experience of one country. Don't exaggerate from the experience of one culture, and so on. You can imagine how this, he warmed to this theme. After, some months after 9-11, I was asked um, whether I thought, as many people did at the time, that 9-11 signaled the beginning of deglobalization, as many of the economic indicators showed at that time, crashing in world trade, crashing in foreign direct investment figures, and so on and so forth, and whether it represented the return of geopolitics, the return of empire in the form of the US, etc., etc. I expressed, as I continue to, grave skepticism about that at the time, I said I suspected the figures would all reverse quite quickly because the way you get out of these crises is to trade more. There's no option of pulling back more. The way you try and re-maneuver your economies in face with these great pressures and circumstances is to re-engage in new ways and to find new motors of engagement in the world economy. And in, so two or three years after 9-11, all those indicators which had hit rock bottom for some time started to go up very quickly. Three years later, they were much higher than they were before until now. Because now is very different, because what this represents is a fundamental crisis of the Western banking system, that um, the Anglo-American banking system that pervades across into other banking systems, the world economy, and so on and so forth. So we have an attack on the base, as it were, which is, brings out many of the issues of geopolitics and tensions and differences between interests that you have both represented. Now, I was asked the question whether I thought this, what implications this has for global governance issues, this is the end of cosmopolitanism and so on. That's another lecture. But I would make three, just one big <coughs> point about this. It seems to me there are three parallel sets of global issues that we face now which are very serious. One is, can this financial crisis be stabilized? Under what circumstances? By whom? With what consequence for which interests? Two, can there be a deal at Copenhagen on climate change? Or will the economic crisis be so severe as to weaken the motivation for a serious redistributive deal in Copenhagen that will bring on developing countries and some of the key BRIC players and persuade them to participate fully? And three, will nuclear proliferation, so much of under a slightly sidelined issue at the moment, but which is such a pressing issue, find a framework of settlement going forward because the issue of nuclear proliferation is only with us for a short time because the fact of the matter is we are getting proliferated. So the question becomes almost the wrong one. And I think these are three crucial governance tests, global governance tests that we are now facing. And the backdrop to this, just briefly, I think, is a profound crisis of the 1945 settlement, a profound crisis of its legitimacy, a profound crisis of its representativeness. The world has dramatically changed. The institutions haven't. They're not fit for purpose. 
faced with that circumstances, the question now is can we, through new coalitions and partnerships, forge a way forward, or will actually the result of these three cumulative pressing issues be the growing fragmentation of the world economy, the growing fragmentation of the world into different regions with their own institutional settlements and so on. In other words, the weakening of the 1945 settlement as we know it. And my answer to that at the moment is we don't know. Because these are three pressing sets of issues. In Copenhagen, it can still go either way. On reforming international architecture, I'm already quite pessimistic uh, for reasons that have been said. On nuclear proliferation, I think the, ho the horse has shot. It's, well, it's out. The genie has been released. And I can't see how it can easily be put back into the lantern unless the West takes the exceptional leadership position of saying, OK, we cannot preach to you about nuclear proliferation with our nuclear weapons. We'll put them on the table, too. Is that likely? Mick has already spoken to that. The other question. Yeah, I mean, I, tax havens I know nothing about. I wish I could get into one, but I don't, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have enough money. But, I mean, it, it, is, it is a fundamental question. I mean, the extent to which... Uh, the extent to which uh, the existence of tax havens, offshore accounts, and all the rest of it, you know, screw the whole, you know, screw Africa, you know, screw a whole part of the world, in which large parts of the people's GDP and GNP can be simply redeposited somewhere. I mean, you know, it's never been tackled. Nobody's, no, nobody wants to tackle it. And it gets back to you know, the point I was making earlier on. You know, this, it, it's a cruel and rotten world we live in, and there's some very powerful interests who don't want to see these things change. I'm afraid to say, but that, that I think, and the same is on, I don't know if Brown's using that for anybody else, to, but I, I just don't know. On, on, <clears throat> on the green issue which you raised, actually part of G20 is going to be about a green new deal, I mean, in terms of the, in terms of the discussions about green energy and the use of green, you know, which I, you know, fully, in, and fully, fully endorse and support. Um, but that will be so long term. I mean, that's the problem at the moment. I mean, it's so long term. What we're facing now, the speed of this uh, economic crisis and accelerated pace of it is such that this is simply long-term investment for, for, for long-term structural renegotiation of, of energy, and, and you know, all very well and good, but it simply isn't going to take. It's not going to take. We need. We need. We, we've got to get out of this within a year or two. We don't have more time than that. I don't think really. I don't quite know what comes at the end of that. Um, and I would also have to say, more pessimistically, again that. Uh, you know, the environment, green issues, although they may be on the table at G20, they're certainly not being pressed by national governments at the moment. <laughs> you know, when they're facing unemployment, mass unemployment, they're facing the kind of downturn in, the, in their own national economies, they're simply not going to invest a lot. I'm afraid the kinds of arguments of Nick Stern and others that, you know, it's a good thing to be green because it's good for your economy. Well, yes, but not, over, not on my patch and not now and not when I'm facing five, 600,000 job losses per month. Um, on IMF and uh, South America structural adjustment, good point, loved it, um, perfect, you know. Somebody once said to an, I think it was to, to, to an American, to, to, I can't remember who it was, Secretary of Commerce, you know, you tried structural adjustment one day. Um, said, Certainly not, you know, that's for less developed countries. Um, I mean, but the, but the IMF formula is now dead. I mean, the idea of balancing budgets you know, taking the government out of the economy. I mean, what co what's collapsed over the last six months has been 25 years of market fundamentalism. I mean, one of the reasons that Barack Obama got elected, apart from the fact he's 20 times more intelligent than the opponents and could speak English and was a great man, was, as I've said 10 times now, was also 
that the Republicans had the wrong message. You know, markets solve problems. Do you believe in Say's law? Supply creates its own demand. What a lot of BS. You know, the reality was that people wanted government, it's particularly AIG and, you know, Freddie and Fanny and all their friends together. <laughs> you know, give me government. You know, I mean, you know, they, they suddenly became overnight Keynesians when they suddenly saw the whole thing collapsing around. So that whole IMF formula, you know, conditioned by the 70s crisis and then implemented with such devastating effects, I do take your point, you know, that's gone. That's gone. And what we've got in this place, we just don't know. I mean, it could be Keynes, but I'm not even sure. I mean, it may even go much beyond, may go much be beyond that. On the, on the last question, I mean, the Euro question, I'll leave to Danny, because that's, that's an economist question. I couldn't dare intervene into such issues as the euro. I think it's very unlikely, by the way. You may have noticed, by the way, the British government has been allowing the pound to, to fall rapidly, and it's not been accidental. It's been allowing the pound to collapse around. I mean, everybody goes, oh, the pound's collapsing. Isn't it terrible for these poor people with four homes in France? You know, well, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry for paying. I really am sorry for people who have houses in France and they're being transformed from uh, pounds into euros. But the, the, it's a deliberate policy to let the pound devalue as rapidly as possible because it gives the British economy some, some, some advantage. The problem is, of course, there's no take-up in demand anywhere else in the world, so we can, we can exploit that in real terms, but that's the deal. Um, you know, and, and, and having a weak pound, you know, it is a form of devaluation, and I think, therefore, that's a major argument by the economic against going into the euro, at least in the short term. It may happen in the long term. As you know, I, I, the LSE, at least some people around the LSE, brought out a, 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 an argument for going into the euro. Uh, about a month ago, Peter Sutherland and a number of others. They don't speak for the LSE, but, uh, but nonetheless, I do think very unlikely in, in that short term. The last question I want to answer quickly is on cooperation and crisis, because I think that's at the heart of it. Um, David says we don't know. Well, we don't know. I mean, we're, we're, teaching, we're teaching at a moment where if, if, we, if we, if we, if, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but we're teaching at that moment that if we go the nationalistic route, if we go the protectionist route, if we go the beggar my neighbor route, now, and there are clear indications that we've been going in that direction, then we are in the deepest, deepest, deepest trouble. Um, I mean, I don't like drawing boring lessons from the 30s, because the 30s was a very different environment. It's a very different situation, but clearly, I mean, the obvious lesson to draw is that when you, when you go in that direction, you will pay, you'll pay the price. You will pay the price. And I think the situation is as serious as that. And I, I solidarize with Danny. I actually want good things to come out of G20. I was simply expressing some scepticism that I do think we simply need far more radical thinking because the crisis is so deep and I'm not sure the thinking has caught up with the depth of this crisis yet. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the other part of the world that could, uh, that could observe structural adjustment under IMF type programs is of course East Asia where 10 years ago there was also a currency crisis and then had to take the IMF medicine. And the observations from there, as well as obviously from South America and Latin America, is that why is not the West now doing what it told the rest of us we had to do? And I think that's absolutely spot on. But that's also why I think some good things will come out of the current crisis, because we will see greater understanding and transparency of how financial markets work. We will no longer take at face value uh, the, you know, the model of uh, extreme perfect competition we will be prudent in a proper sense, in the proper sense, not just fall in with more regulation because we know that many of the most regulated institutions also turn out to be the ones that have collapsed most dramatically. But, but in all of this, I think it gives us optimism and actually I disagree with David. 
because I think that the current crisis is one that actually contains within it the seeds for change in international financial architecture in a way that no previous crisis within recent memory had. It's a crisis that began here in the West. It's a crisis for which the surplus countries out East and elsewhere in the world are relatively well placed now. And the West at some point has to recognize the way we're going to come out of the current global crisis is by giving these people their proper place. Well, yeah, I come from, we all come from a generation on this panel where sex, drugs, and rock and roll are seen as a panacea and not a threat. And uh, before you go into your evenings and enjoy some combination of these, <laughs> I, I want to thank the panel very much for... I didn't want to have Mick to have the only one to tell jokes or make funny jokes. I want to thank the panel for, you know, incisive complementary, complex, difficult, challenging sets of remarks which you know, leave open a range of issues and in fact that is of course where we are. But between them I think they have set, the map, set out the store, provided us a pretty formidable map of the issues and the range of positions that can be taken with respect to them. And um, thank you gentlemen very much and thank you audience um, and thank you for your good humour, particularly Mick. Um, uh, it took for turning such a dark occasion into a very Cheers, memorable evening. Thanks a lot. Bye.